All right, we're beginning on part two of Daniel. And so we're going to take a look at the book of Daniel in regards to Revelation, the end times, and what its message is trying to tell us. And we left off at the end of chapter three, so we're going to begin with chapter four. Now, what's interesting is this king of Babylon, I want you to get an idea of what kind of guy he was. He was such a known figure that you're going to see this statement all through the Bible. And the king of Babylon, you're going to find it in Isaiah 14, which is a reference to Satan. So it throws the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And you have him in Revelation. I want you to see what happens today because I think it's going to shock you. Okay. So time has passed since the events in chapter 3. And in Daniel 4, we're studying the last four chapters which tell us how God used Daniel and his three friends to impact this guy. And this guy was the one who had defeated Jerusalem, Judea, a use of force, torture, cruel. And he had come in and he had not only destroyed their country, but he also had carried many of them away as captives into the land. So this is where they find themselves in the middle of captivity. You're not in your home. He actually has taken you and dragged you back to where he lives. So that's where we're going to begin with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Now, this is near the end of his reign, or at least of what the Bible tells us about Nebuchadnezzar. And what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar is his dreams. He has a lot of dreams. And it seems like God speaks to him. This time it's a little better for everyone involved, including Nebuchadnezzar. He remembers his dream. So this isn't like the last one in chapter 2 where he goes, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me what my dream is. He actually can remember what he dreamed. And I want you to notice something because of the way that chapter 4 is written. It's written very uniquely. Nebuchadnezzar addresses all the people of all languages. So you've got to know where this is going. Why is this said? Who is this spoken to? This is one of the rare times that verse 1 tells you he's addressing all peoples everywhere. It's a message to all people everywhere, every language. And I like what it says here. You would maybe say this is the first time in the Bible, but it says, I'm going to tell you the signs and wonders that have happened to me. If you want a signs and wonders ministry or you're interested in miracles, we tend to think that's only in the New Testament. But verse 1 tells you Nebuchadnezzar is telling the whole world. He's shouting it out. He's saying, I'm going to tell you about some signs and wonders that happened to me. Now, it's unique how he sets this up. In verses 1 through 18, he addresses you in first person. He says, I. So Nebuchadnezzar wrote this. It's actually his words. It's what he's saying through verses 1 through 18. Then in verses 19 through 33, it's addressed as you. And then it moves to third person, which says the king. So you're seeing who's writing this. Look behind the scenes of first it's I, and then it's you, and then it's the king. In verses 34 through 37, it turns back to personal again. It's I. Maybe it's because what happened in 19 through 33 is uh, someone else had to tell this part of the story. He was indisposed. <laughs> All right. So I want you to look at how this is set up. Once again, God is going to reveal future events. And I want you to think of this in terms of your own life. Can you even have a capacity of thinking that God might reveal the future to you? that he might show you what's to come. You know, part of what it says that the Holy Spirit does is he brings a remembrance to our past. He tells us at the very moment what we should say, present, and then he reveals to us the future. And you see here that Nebuchadnezzar, this guy who has very much impacted Jerusalem, is revealed the future. Now, is this because Daniel is in his court? Is it because he prays for him? I mean, what brought this about? So I would tell you that I would uh, pull on this as a promise for your own life, that God, you'll reveal to me my future. So in verse 4, it says, But first he informs us 
that the dream that came to him was in the ease and the luxury of his earthly kingdom when in his own words he was flourishing and he was at ease. Now this is Nebuchadnezzar telling you, he said, I was flourishing. This was a great time in my life. I was at ease. Everything was going well. It was a marvelous time. So Nebuchadnezzar sets it up for you to say life was good. We're looking at where we are in history. That we could say we were flourishing. Things were good. I mean, we had our problems, but, you know, things were working out well. And then this is what is told to him. Now, I want to ask you some questions here. In this dream, I want to ask you, why was his wealth and his prosperity and his ease challenged? For what evil was Nebuchadnezzar being punished? Was he successful, powerful in his wealth, in his dream? Was it going to be to come to uh, ruin? Was he going to come to destruction because he was evil? Is that what this dream says? You are evil, so your success, your position, your wealth is going to be destroyed because you're evil. Nebuchadnezzar's attitude towards his prosperity and his use of position and power, we can say this, is definitely on God's radar, as Daniel will soon indicate to the king. But more personal than that, if God is concerned about a pagan king's wealth, position, success, and power, what does he think about ours? What does he think about where you sit in ease, where you sit in comfort? where you sit and you're flourishing. That's a great word. I'm flourishing. Why would God challenge it? Is it because you're incredibly evil? I mean, oh, we're, we're branding it. I have favor. So I want you to pay close attention because for God to interrupt, I would call this an uh, interruption, an intervention, that God looks down and he, he suddenly puts his finger on this moment. or He puts it on the radar. And what is it exactly is he in trouble for? Because I would dare say we should listen to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar to make sure in our life that we're living our life differently. What was so messed up that God does one of these things to someone? And I'm asking myself, are people all over the world that are in power, that are in leadership, are they having dreams but they have no interpreters? Is God trying to reach to them and talk to them? Are there just that few of Daniels that we don't have this ability to go and speak into someone's life? Or is it that we're cowards? It sure would have been nice if uh, Lincoln would have had someone tell him what his dream meant. <laughs> you know, they had just had a seance in the White House, and then he has that dream. And so prophets are that unique person that speaks into power. And prophets have that ability to take someone that's in power and they uh, aren't yes men, but they actually tell that person something that will help their life. So it's odd how this works out here with King uh, Nebuchadnezzar because this is his second dream. This is not his first dream. And you would have thought that he had learned from the first dream and remembered Daniel. Instead of giving orders to bring into his presence all the wise men of Babylon, you would have thought he would have said, just bring me Daniel. But in, uh, his wise men and astrologers can't interpret it. They, they don't know what this means. And maybe if they did have an inclination of what it meant, they don't have an understanding of God to know what he wants from them, or they're too scared to tell the guy. So in verse 8, it shows the contradictions here. It shows the problems. Daniel is back on the scene. It's, it's a very similar setup as chapter 2. But at last, or let's just say as a last resort, Daniel speaks to the king or before the king. We're not told that the king summoned Daniel specifically or if he was just brought in with the whole group or just later they thought him. It doesn't tell you how this works out. But you're wondering, is Nebuchadnezzar, by bringing these other guys in first, is he wanting to give his wise men, the Babylonian wise men, a chance to interpret it? But uh, decides, as the verse says in verse 8 in the New American, finally he brings in Daniel. But is he, is he just thinking, well, I would really like this to come from an inside group. But 
for whatever reason, it says in verse 8, he finally brings in Daniel confident that, you know, when all else fails, Daniel will interpret it. Have you ever felt yourself on somebody's finally list? Like when at the last resort, they'll finally call me when nothing else works. Like when, uh, when there's no other options. So I get tickled at this that, uh, well, let's just get the prophet of God if we absolutely have to. Is this how it is for prophets in your life? Like, uh, don't bring this one in until the very last. Well, Daniel's brought in. And I want you to notice some things that put a little space there. Put a little space there. Put a little distance there. He refers to Daniel by his Babylonian name, Belshazzar, rather than his Hebrew name. He makes no mention of Daniel's God. But he says in verse 8, listen to this, the spirit of the holy gods, plural. Wow, sound like how they're praying in the house of representatives these days. The spirits of the holy gods. You know, you can see something on Nebuchadnezzar. He's pluralistic. <laughs> he is saying there's a bunch of different ways. I'm going to just be tolerant. I'm going to recognize everyone. And his ego has swollen and his memory has lapsed. He has forgotten a lot. But this dream kind of yanks his chain. It pulls on the rope. It brings him to attention. So the dream is in, in verses 8 through 18. It's a big chunk of the chapter to look at these 10 verses that tell his dream. Now, maybe it's like the days of Nebuchadnezzar where everybody seems to be dreaming a lot lately. And it's interesting what the Bible does with these dreams. He dreams of a great tree and of watchers, of all things watchers. Now, this is a very simple dream. You know, this does not seem like a profound dream, but when you realize what's going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life here, you're thinking, oh, a very simple dream can mean some very complex things, some very real things happening in life. I'm going to just ask the question, would you believe it means all this that's going to take place? But in dream interpretation, I would tell you, uh, it's, it's good to look at dreams of the past and what they meant for you to be able to interpret what God may be saying to you. So he dreams of a great tree. The king begins by telling Daniel the first part of the dream in verses 10 through 12. Now, the first part of the dream is great. It's the good news. It's what's going right. And this did not trouble the king at all. If the dream had stopped here, this is wonderful. But this was the way the dream began. There was a great and there was a mighty tree. And it reached high up into the sky, prominent for all the world to behold. Its boughs and its fruit provided both food and shelter for the birds and for the beasts of the earth. Now, is this how God speaks to you? This tree... Great and mighty. And it provided shelter and food. That means plant fruit trees. <laughs> You're asking yourself, what does the tree represent? The person that this tree represented is who? Because it, just because he dreams of a tree, that doesn't necessarily mean it's him. I mean, the other dream, he dreamed of other kingdoms. Then verses 12 through 18. On the second part of the dream... This is where the king was most worked up. It was the second act that gave him trouble. He kind of feels it coming. There's something else that's added to the scene. There's an angelic watcher that appears in the dream. A watcher. Have we heard those words before? He enters the scene and the angel calls for something. And he says, cut this tree down. Its branches were to be removed and its fruit scattered. A metal band was to be put around the stump prohibiting its growth. The tree, quote, was now to become a creature living in the open field among the beast and having the mind of a beast. You know, it was a proud tree. It was known all over the world. But proud things fall at some point. Anything that's proud and lofty. That's where I would recommend for you, if you have pride in something, I wouldn't treat it lightly. Think about 
if you're known for being one way, like extremely smart or good at something, and you get proud, it falls. And this is the point, is it starts out the strength of the tree, but it shows you what takes place at this point. You know, I've said this before, but they said in the subject of pride in the Bible, they don't even have to mention the outcome because everyone knows that after pride comes a fall. That it's just anytime there's pride, there's going to be a fall afterwards. So you could chart your life. These things are not happening accidentally or, or arbitrarily. It's not spiritual warfare that you're in. It's consequences. And so you see this, that even the heathens are on the same scales. They're on the same uh, spiritual law that if there's pride, it causes a fall in a person. So 17 is the sentences by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision of the command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of men and bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets it over the lowliest of men. All right, so nevertheless, the king was intent on knowing, what is this that I'm dreaming? What does this mean? In verse 19, Daniel's, whose name was Belshazzar, was appalled. For a while, his thoughts alarmed him. Did you know you can get a word from God and it can scare you? It can alarm you. It can just think, oh, you've got to be kidding. But it's funny. <laughs> the king starts trying to work with Daniel. He says to him, uh, Belshazzar, do not let this dreamer interpretation alarm you. He consoles Daniel. He tells him, don't be distressed. It's really hilarious when a pagan person or a heathen or someone that's uh, running away from God starts telling you, oh, oh don't be so torn up. Reminds me of that guy sometime where he says, you're the one that's lost the fruit of the Spirit because you're so upset. And I'm like, I'm upset over you. You're the one that's in danger. So sometimes the reason why people are acting funny around you is you. <laughs> and so the king, is uh, he's trying to get Daniel, he's like, don't be so upset about it. Look at me, I'm okay. Just, just talk to me. So the interpreting of the dream, let's switch now to Daniel's position. Why did it do this to Daniel? Why did he care? I mean, this guy has him in captivity. No telling what has happened to his family. I mean, you look at this, and Daniel is alarmed. He's upset. Well, first of all, for some reason, it's very personal to Daniel. It greatly perplexes him, and his thoughts alarm him. It terrified him. And Nebuchadnezzar sees his reluctance. But through his begging, Daniel goes forward with it. You know, in truth, it seems that Daniel's more affected by the dream than the king. It seems that it bothers Daniel more. Have you ever had someone more bothered by what's going to take place in your life than you are? Have you ever had someone more concerned about where your life's headed? You can see this. This is what's happening here, where actually Daniel is more upset than the king is. So Daniel prefaced his interpretation with a sincere expression of love and concern for the king. He wished that the dream applied to the king's enemies and not to the king himself. What a unique way to start it. King, I wish what I was about to tell you was concerning what God was going to do to your enemies. Daniel is truly committed to serve his king and to contribute to his well-being. You know, you've got to love those that you're called to. <laughs> you've got to put your heart on them. And I would say Daniel had his heart on this guy. And so his words to this guy were, I wish we were talking about someone else and not you. Very unique here how Daniel has the compassion. He has the love. This was not going to be an easy assignment for Daniel, for he knew very well what the dream meant. But Daniel had served Nebuchadnezzar for a long time, and he had been treated very kindly. So his sympathy for the king caused Daniel to shy back from giving what he had to say. So in verse 22, he defines who is the tree. His words in verse 22 are very straightforward. It says, it is you, O king. This reflects of other prophets and other times where it says, you're the man. It's you. This is who it's about. It's you, O king. 
And he says, you're going to be transformed into an animal. Even your thinking will be beast-like. Your mind would think like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar was not only going to lose his power to rule, but he was going to lose his sanity. Nebuchadnezzar, in a dream, has seen his own great meltdown. And Daniel's interpreting for him. And there's a time frame put on it. It says, your meltdown will last for seven years. So it's very unique in Scripture when it tells you what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, and how long it's going to happen to you. This is what this dream tells him. So in verse 24, Daniel spits it out. He goes, this is the interpretation. Daniel now reveals to him, this is the meaning on the dream. On the one hand, the tree depicts things as they were. The increasing height and beauty of the tree depicts the rapidly increasing majesty and splendor of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It looked like Nebuchadnezzar was going to go out in style. It looked like things as they had always been are going to forever be. It was increasing in height and beauty. Nebuchadnezzar judged himself and his kingdom according to the standard of greatness, power, and glory as if he was his own standard. By this standard, the king had done well. The tree was not created primarily for his own greatness or glory. What did God see the tree was made for? What does the verse tell you? This was a great tree. This was a beautiful tree. This was spreading out. And this tree's purpose is for what? For everyone else. Is your life for everyone else? Or do you contain it? Do you live for yourself? Is your prosperity? When have you taken your money and spent it for someone else? Your position and helped someone because of the Lord? When have you taken your favor and your success and used it to glorify God? Because there will come a point that God puts his finger on it and says, that's not what I intended favor for in your life. God very clearly tells you this tree grew up big and it was to provide a shelter of food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So therefore you're not going to shelter them, you're going to become them. And what's so odd about this is the one thing it says in this prophecy or this dream, prophetic dream, is that Nebuchadnezzar would be without shelter. Remember he would go out and it's, it, of all the things it could say, of mental insanity. It says that there were dew on the back of his hair. So it means that he didn't have anything keeping the dew off of him. That means he was sleeping out in the wide open. That means he didn't have a shelter. That means there was nothing to take refuge. He was going to understand what he was doing to other people. He was not giving them anything to protect them. And so he would get to experience what he was doing for someone else. It's better to experience what you're doing to other people on earth than in the future in judgment. And so I think it's no accident, and this is my own interpretation, is that the dew on his back is very significant because he failed to give shelter to those that needed it. He failed to provide the food and the shelter that they needed. And so therefore he would think like them and he would have the same problems that an animal would have. You know, we're looking at what happens next. And uh, after this dream is uh, interpreted, there's uh, silence in the text. <laughs> you don't know what happens. It doesn't say what Nebuchadnezzar said. We can only make guesses here. Uh, let's say maybe the king politely thanked Daniel <laughs> at best. Of, maybe he thought, well, I'm not going to take this seriously. Maybe it was just a bad dream. The dream itself seems to have no great impact on the king's attitude or actions. Or maybe it did. Maybe there was a little bit of an impact. Maybe it scared him a little bit. And he did a little bit of repentance that got through to him at that moment. And we're going to make a case for this for a minute. Uh, maybe something reached him. Maybe there's people in your life that they make you temporarily follow God. Like, okay, I'll do it. 
you know, like a kid under management. Like, I'll do what my parents say. And it stays the judgment. We can only guess here. But 27 must be reckoned in your Bible as a key verse. Notice what happens in verse 27. Daniel goes beyond the dream and its meaning. And he starts urging the king, get it right with God. Get it right with God. For perhaps the Lord will show mercy on you. Get things right. How about if right now that we took seriously what Revelation is saying, and instead of trying to move the pieces and say, they don't mean what they mean, they don't say what they're saying, it's just not what it is. How about if we said, take it seriously, repent, get it right with God, and perhaps God would show mercy on us. Daniel exhorts the king to break away from his sins, to do righteousness, to cease his iniquities, to show mercy to the poor. You know, this kind of lets us know what was going on. It kind of lets you see what Daniel was seeing. It's here that the king's sins are more specifically exposed. The tree was not created primarily for its own greatness or glory, but it was meant to provide something for those around. It's the reason two people pull off from the herd in order for those people to come back and heal the herd. But instead, people pull off from the herd and they're offended or they're not getting what they want or they're not getting what someone else is getting. It's that kind of mentality that gets your finger of God put on us. His pride and his arrogance is exposed as foolishness. It's the root of his sins. The fruit of his sin seems to be self-promotion and then giving yourself credit for it. It's important that we see Daniel linking pride as the reason we actually treat people in our lives bad. Notice this. The king's pride resulted in the oppression of the poor. The king's surrender to God is to be the cure. If this king would suddenly sell out to God, you would see suddenly that he would show justice and mercy. You know, if you would go ahead and do sellout, we'd see a difference in your life. It wouldn't be a drudgery. Sellout creates some unique things on people. It creates a want to. It creates something that no one can put inside of you. He who thought himself better than other men, henceforth, he gets to be like one of the cattle. Now, I want you to think on these words. Pride ignores and denies the fact that prosperity comes from God, that it's a gift of grace, not the reward for our greatness. Do you come in and reward yourself? Are you the rewarder of yourself? Or is God the rewarder of you? Do you comfort yourself? How do you comfort yourself? Are you luxurious in the way that you have all the creature comforts around you? Is your life spent on entertainment and comfort? For this is where God will put the finger. That's where people are yelling at you saying, why is your whole life, why is one third of your day given to creature comforts that you're rewarding yourself? That's what Nebuchadnezzar had fallen into that trap. And if God so should judge a pagan king, what will he do to you that has the word in your life? Watch this. If we are successful, we think it's us. If we do well, if people like us, oh, it's just people like me because I'm likable. I, I do things well. I'm, I'm very good at what I do. When things go wrong... For other people, we think they deserve it. They're not likable. <laughs> they don't have favor. Pride interprets other people's poverty as proof of inferiority. Deep down, you're not only interpreting yourself well, you're interpreting others as negligent, inferior. And we think that their lack of success, their lack of money, their lack of whatever it is, favor, is the penalty for their inferiority. This is what they get. But sooner or later, pride justifies the use of power. And it starts to boast. It can't help but boast. <laughs> it can't help. Out of the mouth will fly outrageous statements. You'll be shocked. Listen to your own mouth. Sometimes I've heard people give themselves credit for things, and I'm like, 
for my life's perfect right now, for how it's going perfectly, for what's going on. And it's the moment of pride where it trips the switch. Sooner or later, it will boast. It will be critical, and it will become the expert. This person understands everyone else. What kind of pride is it? Think through what pride can be. Pride, it can be intellectual pride. Pride of what you've built, you're done. It can be spiritual pride. It can be pride of what you know spiritually. That's where it's shocking. Pride of your job, your position. Pride tells us to use our power because the needy deserve to be taken advantage of. You know, I'd never correlated that the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was sitting in pride about himself and judgment about the poor. And he was basically saying, it's the social classes are divided because of this. Instead of realizing that his power <coughs> was stewardship. Instead of realizing God had made him great in order to show other people. Why do you think he's addressing this letter to you? Why do you think he's speaking into us? Because Nebuchadnezzar, let's call him Oneb, he gets a visit from God. And this is like Scrooge. <laughs> this is like where it's shown before you. I had never seen where it talks about poverty and prosperity, where it's linked together with the bridge of pride, where the interpretation of one is self, and the interpretation from the other person's perspective is that it's God. And that one gives God credit and one gives self credit. Well, Daniel's trying to help the guy. He's, he's trying to help him. He's telling him this is what repentance would look like. He goes away from the dream to describe it. In verse 27, he's begging him, repent, renounce your sins. Can something be changed? The question's being asked, can it be changed? Daniel's not playing the role of Jonah of saying, I hope something happens to you. Daniel's actually begging him. Listen to these words. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy. You want mercy? Show it. Show it to the poor in case there be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, everything you have is at stake if you don't show mercy. It could have been taken care of and done right here. You know, that's what's sad about things. It looks like in Scripture that when this finger comes on it, it can immediately be taken care of. Seven years could evaporate. How many things in your life could be taken care of right now if you heeded my words and said, I will repent. I will show God that my heart is stayed on Him. How many things could be averted if you said, no, tell me that. I want to know it. I want to get this right. Well, we're not sure what happens here with Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know what he does for Daniel. We don't know what happens, how he reacts. We don't know really what takes place. But I want you to notice the language. An entire year passes without a sentence in the Bible to fill up the time gap. A year passes. Nothing happens. You know, when someone gives you a bad prophecy and it doesn't immediately happen, sometimes you think, whew, I got out of that. <laughs> Woo! Maybe this was all a dress rehearsal and I'm not really going to have to live through this. Okay, God, I got your message. You stay over there, I'll stay right here. We're doing fine. So you really think that when a year goes by, you're thinking, what a dumb prophet. He, that, that's why I don't call you into my inner chamber. I don't like what you have to say to me. <laughs> it takes me a year to get over you. But then it picks back up. And look how the verse says it 12 months later. 12 months later. You know, you've got to wonder about this mysterious God. Because if you're not close to him, he's very much a mystery. But he says, don't eat the fruit or you'll die. And we picture drop dead. But in dying, we start dying. 
And it's that slow death, it's that bullying of the frog that bothers me. It's what we're looking at culturally of saying 12 months later, four years later, have you done anything? What have you done with the time I've given you? Has there been a dramatic shift in you? For 12 months later, instead the dream is, and the warning is, seems to be entirely lost upon Nebuchadnezzar. Just kind of like he lost uh, Daniel's phone number, <laughs> wasn't the first to call him, he's losing the dreams. Because all of a sudden he says these words. He says, is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might and by my power and for the glory of my majesty. Mm. Mm. He landed it. His thoughts, what was inside of him. If you have stuff like this come out your mouth, you've got to do something about it. Note the difference in the outcome of Daniel. In chapter 2, when Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar his dream and interpretation, the king honored and gave Daniel a position. In chapter 4, we find no expression, nor word. Because when you talk about repentance, people don't give offerings. <laughs> it's not a popular interpretation. But it does have the power to turn things around. Daniel has slammed the king with the word repentance. There's other messages of the hour. The hyper grace. Other things that could be said. The great tree is Nebuchadnezzar, but he is about to turn from a tree to an animal and his mind is about to enter insanity. It was his chance to repent, but few do. Few do. Very few do. So this concludes with the course of action which might avert or delay the adversity of which the king is warm. Verse 28, it says, And all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Was it that this one-year delay in the judgment implied that he had made some effort to follow Daniel's recommendation, but pride had too much of a deep root in him? Is pride so deep that mere words can't get it out of you? For, as we were saying, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, and that's when he reflected, and he said, Is this not Babylon the Great? I myself have built this. It's that thing where it does look good when you look at what you've accomplished. You can see it. And it was made for my power and the glory of my majesty. He's not thinking like a tree, covering, sheltering. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven said, King Nebuchadnezzar, it has been declared to you. The words were still in his mouth. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from humans, from mankind. And your dwelling will be in the beast of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of man and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar was taking credit for his remarkable achievements the hanging gardens, the luxury, Babylon the Great. And you hear this all the way through Revelation. You see that the spirit that gets us in so much trouble is we declare Babylon the Great. We declare ourselves apart from God. We declare what we've done. You know, if you think about it, the head of gold in his dream in Daniel chapter 2 verse 38 the head of gold, he was described as a head of gold. Maybe now he's being tested by praise. For the head of gold had not bowed in humble submission to the God of Daniel. So you can be told by God, you have a head of gold. 
this other person's iron, this other person's brass, and you take it inside yourself, and your head of gold doesn't bow to God, it's a problem. And I would say this is a classic example of what I talked about when you boast in something, when it's tested by praise, where you give it praise, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had done. He praised it apart from God. He forgot what had happened a year before. In verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was filled. And he was driven away from mankind, and he began eating the grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. And his nails... Ooh, this is gross. They grew out like bird's claws. Have you ever seen these hermits that are driven away from man, this is what happens to them. Their hair grows out, and they put a little ponytail on it, and their nails, because they don't live around people. It was fulfilled. You know, you could write books on his insanity years, but this is all the Bible tells us. But what scripture does tell us, it tells us the exact spot he was standing when it snapped, when the prophecy is about to come to pass. That's why it looks like we're waiting on God forever. But suddenly, it's like it was going on for 12 months, like nothing was going to happen. And then, bam, it's not like it just it grew on Nebuchadnezzar. It's like it dropped on him. Like That was the moment in time that gave the enemy legal right. You gave him an open door. You did exactly what you were warned not to do. And it's at that very moment, it tells you exactly where you were standing. Have you ever realized, oh, I had that thought and I remember exactly where I was standing. I remember when this went through me. A lot of times I remember a conversation or a thought with where I was. And he was in his palace on the roof. I would say from the roof he was surveying all he had. You know, they made roofs back then where you could have parties up there. You could spend time. I mean, the roof was uh, something where you could look over your kingdom. And his mouth is spoken. And it's the exact point in time that his mind snaps. is on the roof. You know, when you're on top of everything. <laughs> you're on the roof. When you're looking at the glory of your splendor, Nebuchadnezzar was not confined to a room, but he was allowed to roam about. You wonder, was he on the palace grounds or did they just go open the gates and let the guy out? <laughs> we got to get this guy off of the roof. We got to push him out. Deception, the snapping of the mind. You know, in studying how spirits work on people, I've noticed that controllers lose their mind. Anytime someone is so controlling, it's like all of a sudden their mind will be controlled. It's odd how these things work. I've seen people that get that amnesia or they get Alzheimer's. And it's because inside of themselves there's something they want to forget. There's something that snaps. It's interesting through this period at the end of seven years, that Nebuchadnezzar knew what happened to him, and he remembered Daniel's warning. And so honestly, without resentment towards God, he realized it was his own sin that had done this to him. And he went out a king, and he became a beast, and we don't know what happened during this time. And this is perhaps where the writer takes the pen up and only someone of sane mind can tell you what someone of insane mind looks like. Because they don't remember their seven years. They don't remember what happens. Their mind degenerates. And so someone takes over writing for him. The king did only the thing he in a beastly state could do. He walks around. He eats grass. He has no one to clip his nails. <laughs> He's just this 
this bizarre sort of animal. How does he repent to God when he's an animal? How does an animal repent? Oh, there might be something for it for Jonah in in Nineveh. They made their animals repent, (laughs) or at least fast. (laughs) Do you know how Nebuchadnezzar does it? It doesn't say he was a talking donkey here. He looks up. He merely lifted his eyes toward heaven. You're kidding. That's what it takes. You look up. You just look up to where the help comes from. And as an animal, this is how he repented in his beastly state. He merely lifted his eyes to heaven. Now Nebuchadnezzar really repents. His sanity is returned. Honestly, is it that simple? Through all of this, he was going to learn some lessons. Listen to this. That pride is a form of insanity. And the one true God that Daniel served was over his kingdom, and he had to acknowledge him as Lord over his earthly kingdom. Insanity is a condition in which one loses touch with reality. Let me say that again. Pride is a condition in which one loses touch with reality. Do you see the interchange? If you're in pride, you're not in touch with reality. Any more than if you're insane. The insanity of Nebuchadnezzar is a foreshadowing of the debasement of man. I wrote these words. It's a foreshadowing of what man's going to look like in the final years of this age. I don't think the seven years falls upon us, this amount of time, as apart from this verse. I can see that many of the proud will be deceived. The seven years is very significant. There's an old saying, a country receives the kind of ruler it deserves. A ruler of the Antichrist is coming on. A person caught up in themselves. A person who thinks that it's by his power. If the people of a nation would pray and seek God, then God would install a God-fearing man in the highest offices. But both the people and the man deserve each other. Both the ruler, for men don't fear God. Often this chapter is considered something very unusual. This chapter is considered the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. This chapter is where, though he did not convert at the fiery furnace, they believe that Nebuchadnezzar converted here. And you will see him among the righteous. It wasn't when Daniel interpreted the first dream. And it wasn't when Daniel interpreted the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar converts but it was the the end of his seven-year period. Do you see this, that at the end of the seven years on earth, people will convert? Can a nation be born in a day? Can people repent? Is that the purpose of the seven years? They don't repent at the warnings, but they repent at the end of the seven years. God intervenes in this pagan king's life. God gets personal and he meddles. Sometimes it's very hard to get people to repent. I have to admit this is quite creative. Samson, his eyes were out because he he forgot his gift. This guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he forgets. Nebuchadnezzar was the world's most powerful ruler at the time. And this heathen king repented. We must regard his conversion as largely as a result of Daniel's prayers. Look at the progression. The king has no idea in chapter 1 about Daniel's God. He's heathen. He doesn't know Daniel's God. But he does know Daniel's wisdom. The wisdom of life of Daniel and his three friends. And in chapter 1, he finds out they're ten times smarter than anybody else he has. And so they find that they are ten times wiser and appoints them to his personal service. 
Chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar learns that Daniel's God is all wise and able to reveal the future to man. So in chapter 1, you see the progression to chapter 2, that God is all wise and able to reveal the future. And Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel's prophetic gift as superior to all his pagans. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar learns that Israel God is not only all wise, but all powerful. Daniel's God is able to deliver those who trust in him even from a powerful king like himself. So you move in chapter 3, he can throw him in the furnace, but it doesn't do anything. But in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes to grips with Israel's God in a very personal way. Somewhere in the events of this chapter, the king is radically changed. We would say he was saved. The God whom Nebuchadnezzar, who only knew intellectually, he now knows him personally. And Nebuchadnezzar cries out to the God. And he declares him as God over all the earth. You know, you read what Nebuchadnezzar writes. And those words are powerful. You cannot find what he writes in chapter 4 and put those words in the hand of an unregenerated man. These are the words of a man who now knows God. In chapter 4, it's the high point of Nebuchadnezzar's life. A point being reached when he was brought to an all-time low. All that happens to the king will not be done for destruction. This did not happen to Nebuchadnezzar to destroy him. This happened to Nebuchadnezzar to give him mercy. God has intervened. This is where God puts his finger on us to bless us. He will be delivered from insanity and God will restore what the locust has eaten and what the enemy has done. This is the time of the consequences of his flesh. What he did apart from God, his self-will has lasted and seven years has burned it out of him. And at this point, it is not for destruction. Isn't it good when the consequences lead us back to the Lord? Nebuchadnezzar now has a testimony. It's quite a testimony. Seven years tormented and back. The first and last of this chapter is written in first person. Nebuchadnezzar's words are I once again. The first and the last. It's a mixture of personal testimony and gratitude. For now his words worship God in spirit and in truth. Nebuchadnezzar pours out his words to the Lord. But you know what's amazing to me is that after seven years he was able to return to his kingship. Most of the time you've been replaced. He goes back to his duties. When God restores him, it says he was sought out again by his counselors and nobles. His prosperity came back to him. His kingdom was restored. His majesty and splendor were given back and increased. When God does it, you get it all back in full measure. The fact that he received it back is interesting. But now it's under his feet. We talked about how Daniel and his friends uh, in our last session were an example of what you're supposed to look like in Revelation. How to stand up in a pagan society. How to not compromise or to bow. How to not give in to the spirits that are around you how you keep your prayer life and your prophetic side and your giftings, that you're willing to believe in God's protection, but you would pay the price as a martyr. Where Daniel and his friends were, actually his friends were protected out of martyrism. You know, Daniel didn't go underground. He spoke boldly and he held political offices. Daniel was truly an overcomer. But Daniel was more of a, a lesson to you as an individual. This one is different. This one talks about the time we're living in, the people around us, the nations, our nation. The same thing happening today. Daniel, the individual, but this chapter is the kingdom. What the church looks like. This is more about humanity as a whole. It's the same thing that we're in trouble for today. Does God get involved in someone's life that's living lukewarm? 
It is what got the Israelites in trouble and sent them uh, out to the wildest parts of the world with wild people. It was like they're dispersed all over. The Israelites were put in captivity and the king turned out to pastor. You know, it was not civilized. He wasn't turned out to from the palace to the civilized world, but to the wild world. It's pretty much the same today. The rise, the fall. You know, you hear of nations, empires rising like Rome. But it doesn't stop with the fall. There's restoration of the nation of Israel. Held to heed the warnings and those of later prophets, just as Nebuchadnezzar failed to heed the warning of the dream from Daniel. We have failed to heed the warning of those of later prophets. God warned his people of coming judgment, just as we've been warned. They, like Nebuchadnezzar, was deaf. And you can tell me why. Why do people not hear God's warnings? It is the picture of what Gentiles have done, the blasphemy. They know they need God. They hear about him. They know his expectations. They see his miracles. They see, but it doesn't take. It's something like they can't hear. So what happens? The same thing as the seven years that's marked out by Revelation. It's a time marked out of deception. It's a war against the mind. Confusion. Dropping to the level where men think more like animals than they think like men made in the image of God. It's insanity. God's people are in places of authority. We've been put where we are for this time. It's our prophetic gift to be flowing where we speak to power. There to help the heathen, the lukewarm, to get it right with God. So chapter 4 is a mirror of revelation for us. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar writes, this is for all people, for all times, before Daniel begins the prophetic words. And so this is a dramatic chapter where people have talked about it. Uh, this is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. That while in chapter 1 and 2, he's getting revelation of this progression of Nebuchadnezzar, this is actually where something takes place inside of him. Let me read you the verse of how Nebuchadnezzar puts it in his own words. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. You remember that where, like the prodigal son, <laughs> he came to a census. And it's like with the Lord, when we acknowledge him, then suddenly everything makes sense to us. So at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, returned to my senses. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand. That's putting your finger on you. Or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. If you look at it, this goes from where it talks about in verse 33 that it was fulfilled. He was driven away. It's just a one verse thing telling about his insanity. But his next sentence is, but, and that's where God came in, but at the end of this period, this is what took place with me. And he's telling, again, he's saying, second time in this verse, at that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began to seek me out, so I was reestablished in sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He nails it. And so in this, we see these words are not the words of someone who doesn't know the Lord. It has become personal for him. For he's acknowledged that this Yahweh... This Jehovah God, this God is over all the gods of the earth. And he saw himself in relationship with him. And so here we have a marked difference in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And it is the period that happened after the seven years. And this is what we're seeing will take place as people go from hearing these warnings 
doing nothing about them, thinking, like you said, they're for someone else, that, oh, somebody needs to hear this, to making it personal, like Daniel had done, where Daniel was saying, oh, King, you've got to take this seriously. People who have done this understand what you're up against. They know what you've got to do. But it took a while for Nebuchadnezzar to get it. And this is the pattern. This is what's laid out in Daniel right here in this story or in this telling of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as they're preaching his testimony of this is what took place. And he tells you how he came to know the Lord. Amen.